Hi-ho, this is Jordan, and you're listening to Drawing Controversy, the podcast all about contentious cartoons and the people who make them. Before I get to our very first episode, I want to tell you a brief story about my failed pursuit at being a cartoonist for my high school student newspaper. I went to Redwood High School, and the advisor of the school's paper, known as the Redwood Bark, was this guy named Tom. While I was never a student journalist, my best friend was, and we would often hang out together during lunch in what was known as the Bark Room. That's also how I got to know Tom, despite never officially being his student. During my junior year, another person I knew who wrote for the Bark tipped me off that the Bark wanted to fill in some vacant space with cartoons. I seized the opportunity and figured because I already had good rapport with Tom, I was a shoo-in for getting my work published. I brought forth what I thought were my best comic strips to Tom and the Bark student editors. Soon everyone in school would see my illustrations in print, or so I thought. As much never happened despite my near two years of trying to get comics published. The Bark editor's reaction to my work was always, meh, and Tom told me outright. My drawings were terrible, my text was barely legible, and I just wasn't that funny. Thing is, Tom was right. My work really wasn't that great. I'd come to realize that as I kept drawing and compared my more recent illustrated works to what I had pitched to the Bark as a junior and senior in high school. Don't get me wrong, Tom's awesome. And Tom, if you're listening to this podcast in whatever part of the world you're in right now, I love you, brother. You see, Tom may have been blunt in his criticisms, but he cared about me succeeding if I was as passionate about comics as he thought I was. Once after another failed pitch with him, Tom showed me a laminated page of an old Bark issue featuring a comic strip called Teacher Teacher for inspiration. Teacher Teacher was a hilarious comic strip made by Tom's former student, Reza Farizmand. I didn't know Reza at all, but based off the illustrations, I could tell that Reza clearly was inspired by the same cartoons as me. Tom told me if I really wanted to get a cartoon published in the Redwood Bark, I needed to make my cartoons more like Reza's. Tom also explained that this guy continued cartooning after he graduated from Redwood, and that he actually had a webcomic I could check out. It was called Poorly Drawn Lines. It featured characters like Kevin the Magical Bird and Ernesto the Bear from Space. As the years went on, I saw a lot more of Poorly Drawn Lines. Friends shared their favorite comics on social media, and any time I went through a listicle like web cartoons you need to read right now, I could count on poorly drawn lines being included on that list. Reza and I would even meet in person in 2019 at a signing for his book, Poorlier Drawn Lines. After I told Reza my story during a Q&A, Reza signed my book with Go Redwood. That book signing wouldn't be the last time Reza and I talked. When it came time to request interviews from cartoonists to make this podcast a reality, I sent Reza an email asking if he'd be interested in talking about his very fascinating career. I didn't know if Reza would be too busy to do this interview or even remember meeting me prior. Well, lucky for me, Reza was down to talk, and he did in fact remember me from the book signing. That brings us to our very first episode of Drawing Controversy. You're about to hear Reza talk to me about the cutting-edge comics that influenced him, the little bit of trouble he stirred as a cartoonist for the Redwood Bark, the life he has now as a full-time cartoonist, and the process of bringing poorly drawn lines to TV. So, get ready, let's draw some controversy, and let's welcome Reza. What have I caught you in the middle of right now? Not much, I just had lunch. Nice. I drew a cartoon this morning, and I'm going to draw some more this afternoon. You know, an easy question I always ask, 
just to start things off is cartoon influences. And I'm sure with your wide-ranging career and seeing some of your early stuff from Redwood Bark, I'd love to know just like kind of what was influencing your style. I'd say my early influences were newspaper comics. Like that's where that was my first exposure to comics. I wasn't a big comic book reader as a kid. I was more into newspaper strip cartoons, like get cartoons, peanuts. Peanuts, I guess, was the big one. That's the one that sticks in my mind. Calvin and Hobbes to a certain extent. And then my second influence after that was probably like getting into Matt Grading's Life in Hell. I love Life in Hell, yeah. Yeah, so for people who don't know, it was a comic strip that Matt Grading, creator of The Simpsons, did on a weekly basis in LA Weekly in like the 80s through 90s. And yeah, so that was that was probably like my second big influence because I started to see something a little bit different and alternative and indie compared to newspaper comics. And that kind of got me interested in trying to draw my own comics because it felt like the art style was not too difficult to wrap my head around. And I saw that someone could communicate really funny jokes with a pretty simple, straightforward style that was really heavy on text and writing. And that's when I really started trying to draw comics myself. What were you like as a high school student? I don't know. I guess I was kind of similar to how I am now, but younger. (laughs) That's good. I was really into being on the school newspaper because that was probably like my first big regular creative outlet that I got to do in high school and probably just in my life in general. Being on a school newspaper is an opportunity to, it can become a passion once you get a taste for it, which it did for me. So I was just really into writing and drawing. Were you actually a reporter for the Redwood Bark or was it just as I'm sure I've already explained in the introduction I'm going to record for this, we were mentees of Tom Mm -hmm. the advisor of the Bark. Were you actually like a reporter and then like your cartoons were like, hey, I can do this too? Or was it sort of more like, hey, can I just like pitch some cartoons to you? No, the first one, I started out as a reporter, opinion writer, news writer. I was actually editor in chief my senior year. And it was in my senior year when we had a space open in the opinion section for a comic strip and I just kind of stepped up to do it because I had been starting to experiment with comic strips in my sketchbook in my free time and I decided that I I felt like some of them were ready so I filled that space in the opinion page one month one issue and then I wanted to keep doing it and it got some positive response so I did probably like three or four comics I think my second semester of senior year I believe is when I was doing it. So what I recall when I was interested in pitching cartoons to Bark, so I I was never a reporter. My best friend was. So I was always in the Bark room. I knew Tom pretty well because he was a cool guy. Mm -hmm. I would always just show him strips, be like, well, can I try this? And he'd say, well, be more like this guy. And he'd he'd show me some of your earliest work. If I recall correctly, it was a strip called Teacher Teacher. Do I have the name right? Was that what it was called? Yeah, it was an exclamation point at the end. Right, right. Yeah, don't forget that exclamation point. What I remember is it was a strip kind of like influenced by Life in Hell where it would be like a figure and then there would be like arrows pointing to like the person's characteristics and like you'd see funny stuff. Yes. And so what I remember, it was a teacher and it was things you will find on the person of a teacher and it was stuff like the autobiography that no one will ever read and it was titled My Life as a Teacher. There was protest sign for the strike that never happened and what Tom said like really got people upset was one said empty wallet yeah that was i think i was okay i guess one characteristic i had in high school that i was very snarky and sarcastic and obviously thought i was rebelling against the uh, authorities which at that point in my life were teachers right <laughs> i mean it I, I look back on that and i'm like 
I, I feel kind of bad. I can definitely see why some teachers are upset. I'm older and wiser now and can definitely see how that would that would be quite offensive to a teacher who's working very hard for not a lot of money. But in my younger days, it, it felt like a form of protest or something. Yeah, and I guess that's what I thought was kind of funny. I probably had the same opinion when I was like 16 or 17 being shown that versus like right now. Mm-hmm. Was it typical to get any kind of like negative reaction when you were like making these strips? Because I imagine a lot of people, they see what you do and just like would tell you, oh, this was really funny or I like today's strip. Yeah. Like I said, I only did three, four, maybe five at most comics in that series, that teacher teacher series, because it was just one semester of Bark. And that one with the teacher was the only one that actually got any actual negative backlash. And it was from teachers. I actually had a meeting with the whole history department over that comic. The entire department? Yeah, wow. I guess so. Yeah, it was like they were having lunch together and invited me in to kind of explain defend myself or whatever. Yeah. Explain myself and maybe hear their side of things, which was a much more reasonable way that they went about expressing their concern to me than just like, I don't know, demanding that my comic stop running or something. We, we sat down and had a, a good discussion and they were like, this is why we find this hurtful or whatever. And yeah, I think I took it in stride and probably didn't pick on teachers too hard after that point but the comic was called teaching teacher so it was just about whatever high school students found annoying or whatever at the time right and so then as you graduated where did you go to college first i went to uc san diego uc san diego and then how were you able to continue cartooning was it just like the right place at the right time or was it sort of like no now that i've done cartoons now i want to make sure i'm regularly doing this so I wasn't 100% sure that I was going to continue doing cartoons after high school, but then I picked up a copy of my college newspaper, The Guardian, my freshman year at UCSD, and saw that they had a comic section, and I decided I wanted to try out. So I drew up a bunch of like college student-related gag comics and sent them into the editor-in-chief. My email subject line was something like, you have good comics, but I can make better ones or something like that. <laughs> um, and so the editor-in-chief was like, yeah, we really like these. And then they brought me in and actually a bunch of editors were all reading over my sample comics and laughing and saying how much they liked them. And so that was like a some really positive initial feedback that encouraged me to A, take the job as a cartoonist for The Guardian and B, continue doing it for all of college past that point. Was it in this stint that Poorly Drawn Lines was created? Yeah, that was when I came up with the name Poorly Drawn Lines was freshman year of college. And unlike with The Bark, where I started as a reporter and then became a cartoonist, with The Guardian, I started as a cartoonist and then became a reporter and actually went on to be news editor and managing editor later on. I was also really into news writing. I, I loved news writing and reporting. It was something I did in high school and college. And with the strips you were making, I think I, I saw one interview where you explained like that poorly drawn lines initially existed just to kind of satirize the life of college students, mm -hmm. like kind of getting to class, how expensive textbooks are. But then how did you kind of find the right tone or like kind of the world that resembles more or less what people see for poorly drawn lines today? Yeah, so I think it was later in college, like junior and senior year, when I started branching out from the kind of pandering to college students' gag strips and started to try to do more abstract and absurd comics. I think around the time I was becoming influenced by popular, like early web comics, Perry Bible Fellowship, Park of Vagrants, Pictures for Sad Children. There were all these comics that I started discovering that were kind of like in the like early to mid heyday of online comics. And 
I was like, oh, I can do these interesting, abstract, weird jokes as well. And that kind of slowly became my style of humor. It took like probably three or four years, even after I graduated, for poorly drawn lines to start to resemble what it does now, which is like my art style kind of evolved and became what it is. And I sort of settled into a color palette and like a general visual style. It probably took me like from freshman year of college to when it started to look like what Quarterly Draw Lines is today was maybe about seven or eight years of drawing in a variety of styles and trying a variety of jokes and stuff. So once you left college, what were you kind of thinking about with the strip? Did you always think like, well, this will always be a good hobby. But then I, I also think like if it were me, I wonder if like the stress of the real world or like trying to get a job or making sure I had a living covered, mm -hmm. if that would kind of distract me. And I know for a while, like poorly drawn lines wasn't your full time job. You had to. Yeah. What were you doing at that time? Well, I, like many recent college graduates, had really no idea what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to do something generally in the comedy and art world. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be a filmmaker, a TV writer, all these things. And I didn't know exactly what the best path would be for me. So I got a job out of college as like a, basically like a paid intern. And then I slowly became a, an editorial assistant at this big media company that owned a bunch of websites that we like wrote articles for. There was a lot of comedy involved and it was kind of like a good big corporate media company, but it was, there was a really cool group of creative people in my department and everyone was sort of working on their own projects on the side. At that time, there were a lot of people like making YouTube videos or who were stand-up comics or TV writers. And this was their day job. And we all kind of worked in this creative department of this media company together. And my side thing was that I was, I didn't know for sure that I wanted to be a professional cartoonist, but I knew that drawing poorly drawn lines, which had become a webcomic at that point, was a great way for me to continue practicing comedy and art. And so I just kept doing it. Like eventually I settled into a three a week schedule. So I was just kind of pumping out comics and practicing writing and drawing. And I basically just did poorly drawn lines on my lunch breaks and when I got home from work for about three, three and a half years while I was at that job. And then I eventually left because I was making enough money at Polydrum Lines to take that full time. And what was the webcomic space when you had actively entered it? You mentioned some of my favorites, like, yeah, Perry Bible Fellowship. But I'm also wondering, like, the web was such a different place back before, like, social media really dictated how the internet worked. Uh -huh. and, um, totally. Yeah, yeah, just kind of like, I mean, even the concept of just making your own website was a different idea back then. Yeah, back then the website was the big focus. That was where your work was showcased. And the way to become a successful comic artist on the web was to drive traffic to your website and then convert that into either merchandise sales or advertising income through banner ads and stuff on the website. I pretty much just looked up how some of my heroes were doing it full-time and read articles or interviews with them. I think one of the most successful guys early on was Zach Wienersmith of Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial. And I remember reading interviews with him and just trying to figure out exactly how he had taken his comic full-time and then trying to basically emulate that, which was, like I said, driving traffic to your website from like aggregators like Reddit and then converting that into like merchandise sales or advertising income. That was the big focus. And now obviously social media is the only way that people will consume content on the internet. And so it's all about trying to leverage like your Instagram and TikTok presence to somehow make a living off of that. 
it's changed a lot and it's probably going to continue to change. This is like very much an evolving industry, like making things on the internet and trying to make a living from it. Yeah. How do you think you would have retooled your approach if you had say started only a few years ago, or if you were like the age you were when you had started poorly drawn lines? Yeah, I don't know. I've thought about this. I can't tell if it's like harder to make money now or easier because a lot of these social media pages or platforms don't pay you any money. There are some that do, but it seems more difficult now to actually make a living from making stuff on the internet because before you had the opportunity to like throw advertising up on your website, which was pretty lucrative for a few years there. And now it seems like there's more opportunities to be seen, but fewer opportunities to actually turn it into paid work. But maybe I'm wrong about that because it's hard to know because I've been, I'm kind of like in it. Maybe if I take a step back a few years from now and look back, I'll have like a better angle on things. How would you describe once you had the website, once you kind of knew what kind of strip you wanted to make and you're creating the world of poorly drawn lines, Mm -hmm. how would you describe like the world you had set up, the consistent world of poorly drawn lines? Early on, there wasn't much world building or consistent characters. It was very much an entirely different setting and characters in every strip. And then at some point I decided that I wanted to have recurring characters and more consistent like world building. I settled into using a couple of recurring characters and yeah, I, I wasn't really sure what I wanted the world to look like or anything. I've always left a lot of room for later online to be kind of freeform and abstract and be whatever I feel like making it at the time. But at some point, I decided that I wanted to have more recognizable characters coming back regularly and developing personalities and stuff. What kind of reactions were you getting from the the site or like as you started publishing the strip more regularly? But it was all based on my website. The fan engagement was mostly through comments. And I was on a pretty clear, like, upward trajectory in terms of, like, audience numbers and stuff for most of the time that I was developing the comic. And so that was kind of what kept me going. Back then, I was really into checking my Google Analytics for my website and seeing how much, like, how much traffic I was getting from all over the world. So those numbers were very encouraging because they just kind of kept going up and... I don't even remember what, what it was. It was like a million views a month or something. I was very happy. And it's it's actually so weird to think back because I used to be obsessed with those kind of metrics like page views. And now I can't even remember like what was a good page view count because I don't use website metrics anymore because it's all social media. Oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't even have thought of that. Yeah. I mean, now I, I can look at like Instagram analytics and Twitter analytics, but back then it was all Google analytics through my website to see what kind of traffic I was getting. And then that traffic translated directly to advertising income from like the few banner ads that I had on my website and the merchandise sales. But back then the fan engagement or reader engagement was all through the comments and my comment section was definitely blowing up. So that was pretty cool to see. And it was mostly all positive and the poorly drawn lines comment section kind of became like a very like kind and inviting corner of the internet i think i hear the words internet comment section and i already like imagine the worst so no honestly i've had i mean i've had a lot of comments over the years but and there's really only been a handful of negative ones uh it's mostly been like positive which is cool so you mentioned like you had your kind of nondescript characters or just whatever may have fit like a certain gag but when creating like more recognizable faces for your site like what was the making of for that It was not super intentional. One day I started using these characters called Ernesto and Kevin. Ernesto was a bright green bear from outer space and Kevin was a blue duck. 
I used them in one strip and then I used them in another and I kept bringing them back and trying to develop their little world. And they lived in an apartment together and they had roommates and friends and they'd get into weird adventures and misadventures. And yeah, it just kind of grew organically. I was like, I like these characters. They're getting a positive reaction from the audience. And it seems like these are going to be my my guys that I'm going to move forward with trying to develop and turn into Billy Drawmind's first two recurring characters. And then what was the process of taking those characters and like the bulk of your work and putting it into your first published book or print book? Yeah, so I knew that I wanted to do a book. I didn't have any idea how to go about doing a book. I was looking into self-publishing at one point. And then I had an editor from a publisher reach out to me and ask if I was interested in doing a book. And then she kind of guided me on how to find a literary agent and pitch a proposal to the publisher so that they could see what my vision for the book was. And then the actual, once we sold the book, the actual physical process was picking like a hundred of my favorite comics and reformatting them to fit into a square book. Most of them were square at that point anyway, but there were a few that went for like multiple pages that I had to chop up to make them fit. And then the second half of that was doing 50% original content. So my first book is 200 pages and it's 100 pages of stuff from the internet, my favorite stuff from the internet, and 100 pages of new comics that were never on the internet. Yeah, I'm curious about like that kind of proposal you have to bring to publishers. I guess I always thought it was as simple as, oh, it's just the same comics you saw on the website, but now they're in a convenient book form. But I guess you're saying there was a little more thought put into it, or mm -hmm. especially if you're putting in original content too. Yeah, every webcomic to book requires... Most publishers require original content, some amount of original content. Most of them are not 50%, but there's usually like 25% or like 20 pages of new stuff. There's one specific strip I wanted to ask you about, if you remember. It was on April 1st, 2016. And I think it was you and several other of like the world's most popular webcomics. You did a strip with each of your respective characters. The joke is it was the exact same strip. And it was like, there's a bucket of water on top of a door. Yeah. Yeah, a person gets dunked, uh, the water falls on the other person, the prankster says April Fools, the person says the gag's unoriginal, and then the punchline is they say, maybe I am the fool. But uh, how did that come across? Because I, I guess, was that an homage to, in 1997, a bunch of newspaper cartoonists drew each other's strips? Like, whose idea was it? Yeah, it was probably influenced by something that newspaper cartoonists had done, but it basically originated from this Facebook group that we all have, all those web cartoonists, most of us are in this one Facebook group and where we can like ask each other questions and share what we're working on. And somebody, I guess that was the first year it was done, April 2016, somebody suggested doing a big prank on the readers which involved all drawing the same joke in our own styles. I don't remember who came up with it. I don't even want to say it, who it might have been in case I'm wrong, but I remember that like Cyanide and Happiness was a part of it. And I mean, pretty much, yeah, like you said, it was pretty much all the notable webcomic artists were in on it. And yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And then there's been subsequent years where people have done things like that too. We've talked about your process of bringing your cartoons in published book form, but then what has been your history of bringing the strip as an animated adaptation? I will ask in just a sec about the FXX show Cake, where you can people can see poorly drawn lines, animated segments. But I think before that, when I actually had seen you at the book signing in 2019, you explained there was the project, I think, with Comedy Central, uh, Trip Tank. Yep. What was that like? 
That was less hands-on. That was just like the producers reached out to me and said that they were looking for webcomics to adapt for their show. And I basically just took a few of my big comics that they were interested in and rewrote them in script format, like in screenplay format, and then sent them in. And then the production company took them and animated them, which was cool to see. I remember like Wayne Brady narrated one of them, which is like my big first big brush with celebrity, I guess. You were who's line fit? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was growing up. So yeah, that was that was like a little bit more hands off. It was just me sending in the scripts and then they animated them. Whereas with the FX cake show, I was like fully involved from start to finish and actually producing the show. Yeah, what making an animated show like always a goal of yours? Yeah, well, even before I was really into cartooning, I wanted to work in animation and writing, writing for TV. So yeah, this was always a goal. And I was eventually had the opportunity to take poorly drawn lines out to pitch to networks and FX was interested and wanted to integrate it into this past season of Cake. It was a lot of fun working on and it was very different from writing a comic strip. I wrote all 10 episodes and it involved learning how to go beyond a gag strip and turn it into a longer story with some character development and conflict and plot and beginning middle end, which is it was a really educational experience for me to basically learn how to write for TV in water format. Yeah, was there a bit of a learning curve there? Because I imagine like if you're a cartoonist and you're like, hmm, I want to make a strip that looks like this, you can just, you can get a scrap of paper, jot down the lines, then draw it and then make it look the way you want it. And you don't have to really think about explaining that to anyone else until the finished product comes but like when you're making a tv show it sounds like yeah no first of all you have to type up a script you have to have you have to know the narrative process and then you have to i I would imagine you have to explain to animators this is how it needs to look this is what i am picturing and make sure everyone's on the same page and yeah i mean a lot of the way that i communicate how it should look in the script in the directing notes that i wrote in the script i mean like when you set a scene you kind of you generally describe what the scene looks like in a script. So there was that direction. And then a lot of the animators were already fans of poorly drawn lines and wanted to adapt the style as faithfully as possible. The animated version obviously looks a little bit bigger and more complex and more dynamic than the comic strip. But in general, I think that we maintained a lot of the look and feel of the comic and the way the the characters design. Yeah, and I totally see that. That's what's like really fun seeing these programs. And for people who don't know, like Cake is, I actually hadn't heard of the show until I figured out like, oh poorly drawn lines is going to be like part of it but it's like an animation anthology series and you can be watching an episode and the poorly drawn line segments are cut between like other animated segments yeah so i asked about world building earlier like kind of how you had a consistent tone when making the strip but when making it a tv show did you kind of have to think about like okay i need a few more grounded details so that like the characters or like the story isn't just generic or doesn't just exist for one gag there has to be kind of like something that people are coming back to or like can expect or they can learn about your characters and your stories yeah i think people watch shows like serialized shows for the characters mainly so there has to be the characters have to be likable and unique and funny so there was there was a lot more character development involved and really nailing down character traits and their personalities and the way that they would behave in certain situations. So how did the animated adaptation become integrated into Cake? Did you originally kind of imagine it being like just a 22-minute series? Or did you always think like, well, it actually would function kind of like as short segments? Well, I wrote it as quarter-hour segments. So the Poorly Drawn Lines in Cake is actually 
each segment of Correlator Online is 11 or 12 minutes long, which is like a quarter hour segment. So I originally envisioned the show as a standalone show with two quarter hours back to back, kind of like Aqua Teetogger Forest or Robot Chicken or Adventure Time. And then B Network decided to make it a quarter hour, like the quarter hour tentpole show for Cake. Did you have other aspirations for like making your own like animated shows? Yeah, yeah. And I still do. I have other ideas in mind and other projects that I'm working on right now. So about Cake and Poorly Drawn Lines, I love voice actors. And for me, like one thing that I always would think is cool is just thinking about like, okay, especially if you're fans of people knowing like, oh, I have a say or I get to watch them record or even audition. Like I actually saw an interview where you said like you were actually pretty involved in the casting process. So what was that like? It was cool. I basically listened to a lot of actors read lines from like a short sample script that I'd written. And then we just tried to find the people who felt like the best fit. I think it's amazing you get people like John Benjamin or like Dana Snyder. To me, my fear would be like, you get people, it's like, wait, that's not what he sounds like. Or just knowing that you might have like audience members like thinking the same thing. But I'm sure that was uh, something you thought about. Yeah, there were definitely there were definitely some audience members who were surprised by the the voice like the voices it's like you know if you read a book and then see it on screen for the first time it's not going to be what was in your head so the casting process was a it was a combination of finding people who sounded sort of like what i was hearing in my head or helped put a voice to lines that i was hearing in my head and then the second part of it was finding actors who had their own personality and spin on the characters as well which was interesting so it was like it was a little bit of a compromise between like what i heard in my head and what these actors could bring to the table and how they could make the characters more real by injecting their own personalities and sense of humor and with your art style who's like primarily working on the actual animation you mentioned like you're part of the script stage but like are you also overseeing that too like the drawings and making sure like it all flows neatly yeah, so I, I didn't animate myself, but what I did was go over every stage of the animation from breakboard to animatic to finished product and give notes along the way. A lot of these people were fans of your work. Yeah, the animation the animation house is Floyd County, who actually produced Archer. And that's how we got John Benjamin involved. It's been awesome. Also, Aisha Tyler. Wow. <laughs> yeah, who played Lana. That came about because I wrote a an Archer reference into one episode with two turtles wearing tactical turtlenecks. And then the director who had worked with both of those actors suggested bringing them in for a guest spot. Yeah, yeah you might as well. And then uh, we also had Lucky Yates, who plays Krieger, uh, right. Krieger on Archer, did a voice in the uh, in the second episode, The Skull. So yeah, we had a lot of a lot of Archer people, which was pretty cool because I was a, a huge fan of Archer. It's like a big influence on my humor style. I think about like when I see stuff that you make is that I'm sure a lot of people listening to this, they might either because they hear your story or because they've just always been fans of your work, they might like want to take a stab, make their own cartoons. And I mean, you probably get asked a lot, but what advice do you give to people who are like, I want to make my own webcomic or like, uh, should I try? Like, where do I even start? Yeah, I think just start doing it. and. Don't worry if it doesn't look like exactly what you want it to look like, or if it doesn't look like the comics that you look up to or read yourself. You have to put in a lot of time to develop your own style. And the only way to get there is just to start doing it. So just start making bad comics and eventually they will become kind of good comics and eventually they'll become really good comics if you just keep working at it. So to end, I'd like to ask you just what are you working on now? Anything you'd like to promote? What, what can we expect from 
the genius mind behind poorly drawn lines? Um, I do not have anything specific to promote right now other than continue following me on your social media platform of choice, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'm not on TikTok yet, but maybe someday. Or you can just go to poorlydrawnlines.com, which is the permanent home of Poorly Drawn Lines on the internet. Well, Reza, thanks so much for joining Drawing Controversy. And we really look forward to seeing more Poorly Drawn Lines. Thank you. I thank Reza very much for being part of the debut of Drawing Controversy. And thank you for listening to this. Drawing Controversy is created and produced by me, Jordan LHH. Music is by Mihail Elish. And artwork is by Keshav. Follow Drawing Controversy on Instagram and at Drawing Contrab on Twitter, and I'll catch you next time.